And if you would turn with me or listen on as I read just a single verse, verse 23 of Romans chapter 6. hear the word of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let us pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you uh, that your word at times is so uh, simple in its expression, so straightforward. It's so easy to grasp, and may it indeed be easy to grasp now through the preaching. You set before us, in the starkest possible terms, two paths and two ways in which we might walk as sinners. And may we, oh God, take hold now through the act of preaching and the act of hearing by faith what you have to say to us. For heaven and hell, life and death hang in the balance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come here uh, to the conclusion of Romans chapter 6. Uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, it has been said, is perhaps the most important chapter in the book of Romans, at least from the standpoint of Christian living. And yet, it is uh, at the same time, and, and this I, I won't say perhaps, uh, it is at the same time the most misunderstood by Christian people. Uh, and it's really tragic because there are truths here which enable the Christian to live the life to the full. Uh, and I hope to review those truths and to set them before you again as we come to this conclusion. Uh, but the Christian who's always walking defeated, who's always walking under the law and under sin, rather than under the grace of God, rejoicing, happy, triumphing by faith, this is a man who really hasn't taken Romans chapter 6 to heart. Uh, and I've said if, if there was any of the whole set of the Lloyd-Jones sermons on Romans that you would wish to purchase, I would encourage you to purchase Romans chapter 6. It's, it's one of the greatest descriptions and one of the most triumphant descriptions of the Christian life uh, that I've found in any book I've ever read. Well, as I say, we've come now to the conclusion of all that we've been considering. And in characteristic fashion, uh, Paul sums it he sums it all up in one glorious statement. He often does that. He comes to the end of a teaching throughout the epistle and, and you find one really strong statement that brings it to a close. Uh, what we should notice in the two ways that are set before us uh, is that he's presenting here the same conclusion that has been uh, prominent ever since chapter 5, verse 12. But here, uh, once more, he presents the same contrast in a still more striking way, uh, once more, in such a way as to sum up and to conclude the teaching regarding the new man in Christ. The first thing uh, that would be valuable for us to do here is to consider the function of the verse itself. This is one of those verses that we love to quote, like John chapter 3, verse 16, and so many others. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, but we often forget the setting in which uh, the verse or the sentence occurred. In other words, we lose sight of the very thing that led Paul to say this. So often these great statements... In fact, I think all of the ones I just quoted, John 3.16, 1 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, begin with the word for, calling to mind what Paul has been saying. The question is, are we aware of what comes before? And are we aware of what led Paul to say, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first thing that I would wish uh, to say about this verse is the striking similarity to chapter 5, verse 21. There he's summing up, again, in in a mighty statement, uh, the teaching which came before in chapter uh, 5, verses 12 through 21. He says, so that a sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at those two statements, chapter 6, verse 23, chapter 5, verse 21, you'll notice they're strikingly similar. What do we notice in both statements? Well, it's the triumph and the magnitude of God's grace seen in contrast to sin and its workings and its wages, which is in both cases death. And so you see there is this honest assessment about sin and what it leads to. Uh, The Bible doesn't sugarcoat uh, sin. The Bible is always brutally honest about the realities of sin and what it leads to in a man's life. But having stated that, in both cases, Paul, uh, against that backdrop, immediately shows us how uh, the, the darkness and the depravity of sin is matched and surpassed by the grace of God. Even as sin reigned in death, so the grace of God Reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We become aware of the magnitude of God's grace when we see that uh, it is that which matches and surpasses the depravity of sin. So verse 23, answering the question, what is the function of the verse? It is a summary of what came before Beginning with the Adam-Christ contrast, verse 12 of chapter 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, and on he goes. The result of Adam's sin, Paul says, is uh, that he died. But not only that he died, but that we all die along with him. For he was not the only sinner, Paul says, all sinned, thus all died. But having stated that, Paul says this in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. Do you see the difference? Through the sin of one and the sin of all, all died along with the one. But the gift isn't like the offense. Paul is building out this glorious and tremendous contrast between the wages of the one man's sin and the gift of God as it is offered in Jesus Christ. And he isn't just doing it in chapter 6, verse 23. He's been doing it ever since chapter 5, verse 12. It all has to do with the contrast between Adam and Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that is what he sums up in the verse I just read, chapter 5, verse so that a sin reigned in death, that is, uh, that is the sin of Adam and the sin of all of his sons, even so grace might reign. How? Through 
righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you understand what happens to a man when he's in Adam? And do you understand on the other side what happens to a man when he's in Christ? It's the difference between life and death, eternal life and eternal death. Well, going on with the argument as it leads up to the conclusion in chapter 6, verse 23. In chapter 6, he continues to explore the contrast. In chapter 5, he was looking at uh, these two historic persons, the two great Biblical historical figures, Adam and Christ, and he was exploring our position as individuals in terms of our relation to each. Either we are related to Adam or we're related to to Christ and everything hangs in the balance. But in chapter six, he begins to look at each of us in a more individual and personal manner. He's no longer looking at Christ and Adam. He's looking at you and he's considering you as What you've become in Christ. You're a new person, he says. Not the old man, but the new man. You're a person. You're an individual. And there in that chapter, you will find two great principles. As you divide uh, chapter uh, 6, verses 1 through 14, and chapter 6, verses 15 to the end, is the two main sections. There's two great principles leading to two great admonitions. And the first principle is that, Of the new man in Christ, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, which he states like this in the early part of the chapter. You've died to sin and you've been raised to new life in Christ. There was the old man, he says, the man I was, but now he's gone. He's been crucified along with Christ, verse 6. And we need to bear this in mind because it will continue to have relevance in the teaching which follows in chapter 7. Verses 1 through 6, he continues to consider our relationship to Jesus Christ in his death. Only there, he says, not that we died to sin, but that we died to the law. And so the contrast there in the first part of chapter 6 is between the old man and the new man. The man that I was before I was a Christian and the man that I am now that I am a Christian. And that I am united to Christ. And the result of this is not only that we are men made new. That's how John Stott describes chapters 5 through 8. He has a little book I've been using. Men made new. We're men made new. But that as men made new, we enjoy new life and a new obedience. Leading to the first admonition, verses 11 through 13, in essence, I'll summarize it. He says, reckon yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ and no longer use your body as instruments of sin, but now as instruments of righteousness to God. Begin to live to God. Realize what is true of you. Realize that you are new men and women in Christ and stop going down the old ways of sin. That's what the old man did. But you're not old anymore. You're new. You're made new by the grace of God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The second principle is found in verses 15 and following, where Paul says in verse 16 that you're you're a slave of the one you obey, either sin or God. And so he looks at the contrast of the old man and the new man, the man who was related to Adam and now the man who's related to Christ in terms of two forms of slavery. The old man was a slave to sin. Slavery to sin was the characteristic feature of his life. It's the characteristic feature of the life of any man who is not In Christ today. But Paul says. uh, This was true of you before you came to be in Christ. But thank God it's true of you no more. Verse 17. 
Now you've been set free, but not absolutely being set free from sin. You've become a slave to God. Verse 18. The contrast is one of obedience. The man who is a slave to God obeys God, whereas the sinner does not. He obeys the dictates and the demands uh, of his sinful flesh and of the world and of the devil. Uh, More narrowly, in that little book by John Stott, Men Made New, uh, I found his summation of this little uh, of, of this section, verses uh, 15 through 23, very helpful. The question is, once more, verse 15, shall we sin? We're under grace. Shall we sin because we're under grace and not under the law? And Paul uh, once more answers that by pointing to the contrast between the old slavery and the new slavery. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to God. Therefore, we shall not sin. That's the answer. But in in each case, as Paul is contrasting the old and the new, this is Stott's observation. I found it very helpful. He says, there is a beginning, there is a development, and there is an end to such a life. If you study uh, verses 15 through 23, you'll see that very clear, uh, very clearly. Uh, So beginning with the slave to sin, Paul says, uh, which all of you were at some point, verse 17, there is a start, there is a beginning. In fact, all of you. Started out life like this. You were conceived in sin. You were born slaves to sin. As, as Adam confess, or excuse me, uh, as, as David confesses in Psalm 51. That's the way you begin your life. In other words, a man doesn't choose to be the slave of sin. That destroys the teaching. It destroys the analogy. He's born a slave of sin. That's how he starts out his life. But from this starting point... He proceeds to commit all manner of sin. So there is, Paul says, this terrible development in the life of the sinner. He goes uh, from worse to worse. He's sinning all the time. He's going down the downward spiral that you see in Romans chapter 1. This is how he puts it. Just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. He's getting worse all the time. What fruit did you have then in the, in the things of which you are now ashamed? This fruitful or fruitless, shameful life which you once lived. But there's also a terrible end to this kind of life, which is death. That's something which Paul states over and over throughout these verses. Verse 16, verse 21, and again in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That's the outcome of this kind of life. The man, the sinner who's on the Broadway, which leads to death. But thank God, Paul says, though you were like this, you are no more. The Christian life, first of all, involves a new beginning, which he states uh, uh, like this. Verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet, in essence, he says you are no more. You've become you've been set free. You've, You've been made slaves to God. You've been born again. You're a new man. You're a new person. But not only that, Paul says, that's just the beginning. But there's also development and progress, just as there was on the other side. Hence what he says as the second admonition in verse 19. Just as you were presenting your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading more on lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Just as the old man was getting worse and worse with time, so the new man is getting better and better with time. Do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? 
That though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. Not only does he get a new start, but this process of renewal is continuing throughout his life. Grace is reigning. Grace is triumphing over sin, even over the mortal body. As I say, he's getting better all the time. He's making progress. He's growing in grace. He's running the race so as to win. He used to live for sin. Now he lives for God. But that's not all Paul says. There's also a new end. Now instead of the end of the road being death and destruction and the miseries of hell forevermore. There's a new end. There's eternal life. Verse 22. But now you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life or verse 23 for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Christian man is he's running the race. He runs so as to win. He's going to heaven and he knows it and he lives for this. Heaven is the prize he lives for. It's where he wants to be. You might even say, uh, as Thomas Watson would say, that in a certain sense, he's already there. He's carrying heaven about him in his heart. Do you understand why it's so preposterous to suggest that such a man would live for sin now? He would continue in the path to sin. He would live as though he was going to hell, even though he's going to heaven. Uh, It was another Puritan who said, I quoted him in another sermon, that people today live as though they can't wait to get into hell. They live for hell. They want uh, earth to be a kind of hell, a place of unmitigated sin, a place devoid of God. Well, soon enough, they'll have their end. They'll have what they want. But Paul says the Christian is a new man, is a man who's got a new start and he's making progress And he's progressing on to his appointed end, even everlasting life. That's what's promised to him. That's what's assured to him. And the man who's on this path is not a man who says, well, because it is so, I might as well sin. He says to that suggestion, certainly not. I'm a man who lives for God. I'm a man who wants to obey God. I'm a man who wants to be in the place where there is no sin. And there is no temptation. And there are no stumbling blocks. I now belong to God. I'm his slave. My concern is obeying him, obeying my master. Disciplining my body so that I might live a life which is pleasing to him. You see, both lives, Paul is saying throughout chapter six. Must be viewed as a complete whole, a beginning, a development and an end. And that is the way to appreciate the contrast which he is now summing up and concluding in verse 23. The two roads which men walk. And and, and, and what we see in this verse are three crucial differences, some old and some new. I mean, that some of the differences we'll see here we've considered before and some of them we haven't. Or at least one of them we haven't, the second crucial difference. The first of which we have seen And that is that there are two masters. When Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is viewing man as a slave. A man under the mastery of one or the other. Either man is being paid a wage by sin because sin is his master. Or man is being offered a gift. But in either case, 
It is his relation to the master that determines the outcome and the course of his life. And so that thought has been crucial uh, to this second section in chapter six. You're a slave of the one you obey. There are two masters, God and sin. Once more, we ought to note the absoluteness of the contrast. The error that we sometimes fall into is that there is a kind of middle way. That a man could be the slave of sin, that is the unbeliever, and yet in some sense still be the servant of God. That isn't true. You're denying the teaching. You're also denying the obvious experience of the man. But in the other sense, we need to recognize the opposite is also true. That if a man is a slave to God, then he's a slave to God. He isn't a slave to sin. That slavery has ended. And if he sometimes thinks, well, I've become a slave to sin again, he hasn't. Appreciate the contrast, beloved. The absoluteness of the contrast. Van Til called this the antithesis. Again, these are polar opposites and they share nothing in common. It is impossible that a man should be the slave to God and at the same time the slave to sin. And so what is the value of seeing this, these two masters? Well, it is once more that we might glory in what Paul was saying in verse 17 and that we might glory in it as a personal concern. Again, he says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That is not a theoretical statement. That is the reality and the truth of everyone who is in Christ. And the value of seeing this, therefore, is that we might appreciate What is our true position as Christian people? The Christian is not a slave to sin. Let him see this. Let him reckon fully with this reality in his daily experience, in his temptations and his trials, even in his sin. Even when he sins, he's not a slave to it. He's the slave to God. And so this doesn't mean that the Christian who is a new man and a slave to God, never sins. But it does mean, as Herman Ritterboss says, that grace is that which nullifies the operation of sin in man. That's one of the most powerful uh, summations of of this chapter I read in all of my study. Grace is that which nullifies the operation of sin in man. In other words, grace is that which ends sin's dominion over a man's life. This is a point I will not tire of making. The Christian, Paul says, is a man who's ruled by God. He's a slave of God. And therefore, the Christian is someone who serves God and not sin. Uh, Sometimes it's put like this. The man who's born again enjoys a new victory over sin. Formerly, he was a slave, but now now he's the victor. He's not under sin anymore. He's under grace. and, and, And therefore, he's over sin, no longer under it. He enjoys a new victory over sin. I remember this happening to me in a very striking way. When I was converted as a young man, I didn't stop sinning. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that sin lost its grip on me. And I'm asking you in light of the teaching, not so much in light of my experience, but in light of this teaching. Do you know anything about that? Do you know what it is to be shaken free from the grip and the slavery and the dominion to sin. Do you know what it means to be under grace and no longer under the law? 
It means that sin no longer controls you. It's no longer your master. It can no longer make you do what it wants you to do. And if ever you should fall into its ways, you realize how quickly you might get up and shake free once again and go on walking as the Christian should walk. There are also two wages. Now this is an entirely new thought. There are two methods of payment. Sin pays a wage. Have you ever thought of that? Did you ever think of sin like that? You see, if you realize that sin is a master, this terrible tyrant in a man's life, then suddenly what Paul is saying here makes perfect sense. The wages of sin is death. The wage that the master pays those who are under it. And are we surprised to see not only that sin pays a wage, but that the wage that it pays is death. That has been the argument from the beginning of the Bible, which is why I read what God said to Adam in the beginning. On the day you eat from the tree, you will surely die. As soon as you begin to give in to sin and obey its dictates and its lusts, you will earn its wages. Death comes through sin. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. The soul that sins shall die. That's the argument of God through the prophets in the Old Testament. Never has scripture wavered on this point. But in calling it a wage, if you think about that, the wages of sin, Paul is pointing to the justice of the wage, the justice of death, as it is meted out to the sinner. As John Murray says, death is earned. It's what the sinner deserves. It's the due which is due to him for his sin. There is no injustice in this. It's only what God said he would do. The soul that sins shall die. On the day that you sin, you shall die. The wages of sin is death. And it is exactly, it's not only what God said he would do, but it's exactly what the sinner deserves. Nothing less, nothing more. There is a perfect justice in the death of the sinners. Look at him as Paul has been describing him. You see, the life of sin is not modest, it is immodest, it's shameful in every way, it's fruitless. The man who sins only goes on to sin more and more and more, not less, but more, always. And the only thing preventing him from sinning more than he does is opportunity. He lacks the opportunity. If he could, he would kill God himself. And the one opportunity God gave them, the sinners took. They laid their hands on the Son of God and they put him to death. The sinner hates God with all of his heart. There is nothing unjust in the death of the sinner. But on the other side, Paul says, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is something that he's apt to do, namely expressing the wonder of grace against the backdrop of the depravity of sin. That death is meted out to the sinner as is due. But eternal life is given freely as a gift in Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? It's perfectly obvious. On the one hand, there is a wage. Which is paid as a man's due. It's what he's earned. It's what he deserves. Nothing more, nothing less. On the other hand, it's not a wage but a gift. And if only I could make you to see. And I hope that you are able to see. That everything that Paul has said in Romans up to this point and everything that he will say beyond this 
is to the end that we might see that salvation is a gift. That heaven is a gift. It isn't something that the man is able to earn, nor does God propose that he earns it. It's something that God offers as a gift. I would call this the keynote of the gospel itself. Uh, what the Marrow men called the freeness and the fullness of the grace of the gospel as is, as is offered to sinners in Jesus Christ. It is offered freely. It is offered fully. Do you understand that salvation cannot be earned? That is the fallacy of the legalist. It's the fallacy of the antinomian. Salvation cannot be earned. It can only be received as a gift freely given. To conceive of it as any other thing than as a free gift is to destroy the whole idea of grace. You ask, what is grace? I'm under grace. What is it? Well, grace is this. It's the bestowal of a gift on those who deserved the opposite. It is the bestowal by God of life upon those who deserved to die. That's what grace is. Granting to man a sure title to heaven by rescuing him from Adam's sin and placing him into Jesus Christ. God doesn't say to the sinner anymore, as he once said to Adam, heaven must be earned. It must be earned as a wage by your obedience. That's what he said to Adam. But that isn't what he said to Paul. And that isn't what he's saying to you and me. To Paul, he says, heaven is bestowed upon guilty sinners freely as a gift. That is what you must preach. And the only way that guilty sinners can ever enjoy the gift of life is in Jesus Christ, my son, whom I have offered as a gift. Whom I have delivered over to the cross that they might be saved. And whom I have raised up that they might be justified. You see they have to get out of Adam where there is death and sin. And they have to get into Christ where there is righteousness and life. And the way they do this is by faith. We are justified freely by his grace by faith alone. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus and so that's what Paul preached. He preached, he preached the gift of life through Jesus Christ. And in no other way. Not through man's works. Not through his merits. Not through his prayers. Not through his repentance. But solely through the gift that is found in Jesus Christ himself. And it is only by coming to him that we are able to receive the gift. But there are also two great ends. Not only two great Wages or methods of payments, but two great ends in view. As we've already seen, the end of one kind of life or slavery leads to death inescapably. The wages of sin is death. Death is the appointed end for the sinner. It's where his sin leads him. He's on the path that leads to death. And death here is seen not merely as the dissolution of the body at the end of a man's life. But it includes even that second death which... Revelation speaks of in Revelation chapter 20 when sinners are resurrected and cast into the lake of fire. But understand that on the other side, the end of the Christian life is eternal life. It's what God promises to all who are in Christ. It will be bestowed upon this man, this sinner redeemed by grace freely as a gift. And yet, as a gift, it is his as surely as if he had earned it for himself by his own obedience. 
But the point here, as in verse 22, is how certain this is for the man in Christ. That there is a correlation between the outcome of his life and his life. And for the man who is in Christ, eternal life is assured to him. It isn't something he has to earn. It is the gift of God freely given in his son. And it is as certain to him as death is for the sinner. In either case, the outcome is assured. The man who is in Christ can no more lose his reward or his gift than the sinner can escape going to hell. And so once more, we see that chapters five through eight, as I've stated before, really amount to uh, the assurance which Paul is giving to the believer, not just in Romans chapter eight. That's the high point. But Romans chapters five and now six, seven and eight all point to the fact that God in Christ is giving us something that we cannot lose. Adam lost it. But now uh, the gift which God has given us in Christ is something which if we have received, we cannot lose it. We are assured of it. But the only thing left to do then is to take the statement as a whole. Here is the plight of the unbeliever. The wages of sin is death. You understand why this is one of the great evangelistic passages. His plight is seen in his terrible bondage to sin. One from which he cannot break free. And what is promised to him is death itself in all of its forms. These are his wages. And will he not, Paul says, and will he not, I say, hear the summons of the gospel. That the wages of his sin is death. That the soul that sins shall die. Oh, and why will you die, God says? Will you not turn from your sin and live? And all the more. When the guilty sinner who knows that he deserves to die and he knows that he deserves to go to hell. All the more will he not turn when he hears that life might be enjoyed by him as a gift. Salvation is the gift of God. He doesn't have to earn it. God is offering it to him freely as a gift. Does not the sinner see how easily he might be saved? Man who deserves to die, who deserves Nothing from God, never again to dwell in his presence, but to him whose wages is death. God says, I offer the gift of life in my son to him who believes, though he dies, yet he will live. For God so loved the world that he gave notice the gift he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish that is die, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. It's the message to perishing sinners who deserve to die. Men and women who are going to hell. It's the gift of God offering, offered to men who deserve the opposite. By grace the sinner is pardoned fully of his sin. And he is given freely what he didn't deserve. Namely eternal life. And so why will you die God says to the sinner. Why will you not rather live. Seeing that salvation is offered to you freely and fully as a gift. And that you might enjoy it simply by believing. He doesn't ask you to earn it. He doesn't offer it to you as a wage. He merely asks you to receive it as it is, namely as a gift. So that the man who dies in his sin does so deservedly. The sinner in hell has none to blame but himself. He can't blame God. 
No, he's only suffering for his own sin. But even beyond that, he's sinning against grace because God offered to save him. God offered him life as a gift. And he turned his back on such wonderful, staggering grace. I tell you this morning, if you find yourself in the life to come in hell, it will not be because that God lacked generosity, that God lacked grace. It will be only and solely because you resisted the Holy Spirit who sought to save you. What fools we are, God says, if we die. If we earn the wages of sin, if we perish in sin, seeing that eternal life was offered to us freely by his grace, a gift to be received simply by believing. And that leads simply to this question to all of you. Have you received it? Salvation is offered to you as a gift. Have you received it? Do you know anything about the gift of God? Do you understand what it means to be under grace? Or are you still seeking to earn it? Well, to the man who works, he will find his wages. That's what God says. But to the one who believes, salvation comes to him as a gift, freely bestowed. J. Gresham Machen, uh, in his book, Faith, says this. Faith is not doing, but receiving. And if you, if you ever noticed in the Shorter Catechism, the Confession of Faith, that's how it describes faith. It's a receiving And resting in Christ. It isn't a doing and earning. Even a child knows that, Jesus says. And while the wise men of the world seek to earn heaven, the child knows that he can only receive it as a gift. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you received the gift? Amen. And let us come now to the table. One of the things that we recognize through the practice of communion is uh, just because a man assumes a place in the pew does not make him a Christian automatically. He might uh, sit under the preaching, he might do so happily, he might try to live as a Christian. But one of the things uh, that communion does, as I've stated many times, is that it distinguishes. Uh, A prerequisite to coming to the table is a profession of faith. A man has to say, uh, that uh, he has to say to the elders and then to the church that that once I was a slave to sin, but by God's grace, I am no more. Formerly, I was going to hell, but wonder of wonders. Now I'm going to heaven and I know it not because of anything that I've done, but because God offered it to me freely and and I simply received it by faith. Uh, so don't don't tell us uh, in a membership interview, we ask you how. How does one earn the right to heaven? And if you say by being a good person, which it, to, the, to my amazement, people still say that from time to time. Uh, don't be surprised if, if you fail the membership interview. What is your right to heaven? Well, your only right to heaven is Jesus Christ. And, and by faith, the fact that you are placed into him and that you now stand before God in him. And if that is true of you, then you have a right and a place to the table. 
by which uh, week by week we express not only our faith in his death as our salvation, but our hope in his return. We are to proclaim his death until he comes again. Now, it is with that kind of faith uh, that we come to the table and we are blessed, just as it is with that kind of faith that uh, we are blessed by all that we do here on Sunday. Uh, There isn't anything here for the natural man, the old man, the carnal man. Uh, I can't think of one thing we do that would appeal to him. Uh, But everything that we do is suited to bless and to nourish the new man in Christ. And that's how we ought to view the Lord's Supper. It is a spiritual feasting upon Christ by faith. Uh, Now, I'll just let those words stand as as words of of invitation and fencing. Let me read. um, I think I was supposed to read the words of institution first, but that's all right. I'll read them second. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it. And gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And let us pray together. Our father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the gift of life in your son. It's amazing to notice the variety of expressions, Lord, in Scripture. Sometimes the gift is your son. Other times the gift is life, which we find in your son. Uh, But however we look at it, it's it's always a gift. It's not something we are able to earn nor we're asked to earn. We're simply asked to uh, assume the one disposition that receives the gift, and that is to have faith. And even that, O oh God, is your gift to us. It's, it's, it's a supernatural work of the Spirit by which we're made new. And the first act and the first instinct of the new man is to believe. Well, Lord, we praise you that there isn't anything that you ask us to do in that sense, but that you do it all for us. And that you become, uh, from first to last, uh, the Savior of your people. And we ask you that that might be evident in our, in our weekly Sabbath worship. That it might be evident in the preaching. That it might be evident in the singing. And that it might be equally evident in the partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Bless now your people, we humbly pray, uh, and build them up in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.